episode of the Comfort Monk Podcast. Yes, today we have a pretty exciting uh, guest, Jarbo, who's going to be on the show um, and speaking with Eddie. Yeah, she's. Uh, it's really hard to describe her career in a couple minutes, um, just because she has put out so many amazing albums, collaborated with so many amazing artists. Um, she has her own visual art that she does. She's a performance artist. She just kind of has, you know, an entire career of, you know, just a constant, uh, incredibly creative output. Um, and it's hard to nail down, but if I had to describe some of her more recent stuff, uh, it's, you know, electronic, it's ambient, um, her, her vocal range you know, it goes from operatic to death metal. Wow. Um, you know, she she's Ultimate just a unpigeonholable artist. Yeah, yeah, probably one of the hardest artists to uh, to talk about. Um, she was a part of Swans during a huge uh, transition period for them, um, and since then she she was on uh, a, another Swans album after she left. But I, I think it's fair to say that. Uh, Swans of today would not be the same without her input. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm, I'm really excited to have her on the show, and I think it's going to make for a, a really great episode. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening, and yeah, we're going to just jump into it. This is our episode with Jarbo. Enjoy. Thanks, guys. You know, the risk of this is you don't know what it's going to do to you. And, you know, with quite a few people that ravages the lungs, well, the lungs are sacred to a vocalist like me. So it's Mm. kind of like I'm not willing to play with fire. Only yesterday, you know, my tour was uh, was supposed to be last April and May. And then, of course, it was postponed. And then he rebooked it for um, November, December. And so yesterday was this thing about, well, we're going to have to push it forward again. I'm like... I'm like, no shit, Sherlock. Like, <laughs> like well, yeah, we got to move it forward. <laughs> and and even if you move it forward to late spring, um, you know, you don't know. It, it could be that you can't even do it then. And the weird thing is on July 1st when, um, you know, when Europe uh, uh, officially reopens, um, you know, the news yesterday was that they will um, – you know, ban United States citizens from entering Europe. So, of course, I tour Europe. So, of course, you know, there's that answer. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, not and that like, you can blame them tickets, for that. And our tickets, you know, our tickets, uh, my guitarist's tickets, the, you know, the, the airport we're landing into is Amsterdam. Well, as of right now, if you land into Amsterdam, right, from the U.S., Mm-hmm. The officials take you, turn you around, next plane out of here, back to the U.S. You cannot even get out of the airport. Yeah. So I don't really know what message Americans need to hear <laughs> about how hardcore this is. But for someone who travels to Europe a lot and who primarily tours in Europe because they care about artists, 
unlike this country, then, um, you know, that's, that's like hardcore news for me. And, and a lot of us, you know, you know, that's what we do. We do tours and touring for years has been, you know, the bulk of my income. So it's kind of a, kind of a hardcore thing to release an album and, have the European label, have professional publicists, do interviews for, you know, The Wire and build you know, all these magazines. And then, you know, and everything's set in place. Like you're going to do a radio appearance, you're going to do an in-store signing, you know, and, you, and uh, all the venues are what you want. They're art, art galleries, art venues, and they're, they're, they're wonderful. You know, it's like the, your tour, your, your dream tour, right? That's why I was waiting yeah. for me. I was so excited. And we'd already, the, the person I was touring with, we'd already worked on the concept we'd already arranged everything we were already ready to go and and it started out with a residency um, which is what i did with father murphy so what that means is you you meet in europe after you have virtually rehearsed and then you have a residency in a venue with the pa for a couple of days and then so that gets you ready for live and so we had a residency residency set up in moscow and, and we were going to be over there for several days before you know the first show and and I did that with Father Murphy in the previous European tour. We had a residency in the Netherlands. So this works out perfectly because it's economically, um, you know, advantageous to do it that way. And, and most musicians today can rehearse virtually. And then, um, you know, if you, and then you mm-hmm. especially do like a run-through, like a dress rehearsal before you go live. And, of course, that is, having said that, is, it depends on what you're doing, A, you know, what kind of music you're doing, but B, it depends on, um, you know, how many years you've been doing it. So for someone like me, you know, a veteran musician, I mean, it's, it's like a, it's very easy for me to, to work that way and not have to do these, you know, but of course it just depends. If you have a complicated group of like six to eight people, then I imagine, you know, it might be, you might have a more of a longer residency requirement, but it's quite freeing to not have to do that just financially and just, just, you know, psychologically to just rehearse virtually, you know, via the internet and then boom, there you are, you know, a, a few days dress, run through dress rehearsal before you go on your tour. And that's, that's what I recommend people to do like me that tour Europe. <laughs> yeah. That, that makes a whole lot of sense. I, I hadn't even thought about that. Uh, like ha- having to, having so much to set up. And uh, of course your stage show is very intricate and there's a lot of performance and I, I don't know, obviously I can't speak of your, your new, uh, tour that hasn't happened yet but you know costuming and i'm sure there's a lot of lights and design and stuff that goes into it well the the one we were getting ready to do was a follow-up to um the necromonicon which uh i had done um with with a similar idea with a with a film backdrop and so this was going to be a multimedia uh, performance with the film taking up, uh, uh, you know, the dominance of, of the stage. And I like working that way. And, you know, and, and, and you're still performing, but, but it gives another aspect to the performance for the audience. So it was going to be, you know, multimedia thing with, with the, with the screen and the film and we had everything good to go. And, and, um, it was such a success at the Necromonicon in Providence, Rhode Island. You know, that's the DHP Lovecraft Festival. What happens every mm-hmm. two years in Providence. And they invited uh, me to, to do the performance for that along with Godflesh. And of course I know Justin. So that was a lot of fun to, you know, to, to see him again. They flew all the way over just to do 
with shows in Providence and leave. And it was our only U.S. show. So so it was a very exciting night in an old theater, you know, and, and it was... Um, it, it was good for me to, to to explore, you know, the concept of it because I had like a, I had Chris Forrest on on viola, and mm-hmm. and I had uh, I had Brett uh, Robinson playing gong and playing um, uh, a brain an old uh, old like vintage brainwave synthesizer, and that was <laughs> that was really cool. And and then um, you know we had guitar and then I was playing um, iPad. I played the iPad and so I had vocals I'd manipulated that where I was playing through that. Mm-hmm. And then I also did live vocals. So you heard me live and then you heard my manipulated voice repeating the the words and and the words were were um, I, it's it's it took me a long time to write these words. It took like a year and a half. It's it's like a, a it's basically like surrealist science fictionist kind of prose. And it wound up I wound up um, using those a lot of reciting those for the Black Mouth, uh, the last Black Mouth album. And that was a very long and laborious process because I was trying to, you know, to fit into our vision for the second Black Mouth album. And that vision was like a cyborg. So I was, so I was trying to, to kind of, you know, articulate as if I was uh, an alien being, you know. And so it's, <laughs> it's, 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 but I mean, it was really like pulling teeth. I mean, it was brutal writing that way. And because, you know, I kept him to throw myself into that mindset. And so... So, we, so I, was, I was able to perform those without the black mouth music, just with a like an avant-garde, um, you know, improv kind of a thing going on for, for the Necromonicon, and I, I was thrilled at how that came out. It was just got a got a tremendous amount of applause, and, and people seemed to like it. And I thought it was perfect for you know for a Lovecraft festival to be to be trying to my hand at that kind of writing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really cool place to be able to do something like that. Um, I am not surprised that you have some Lovecraft uh, influences. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I understand why it would be hard to do the cyborg thing, because I think uh, from my interpretation, um, a lot of your music is very human and very um, like bodily, and a lot of it's about you know these strong kind of emotions. Um, so I imagine trying to filter that through, you know, something that's outside of the human body, outside the human experience has got to be hard. Well, the first, uh, the first, um, conscious effort at that was the first Black Mouth album when I felt like, because they are, uh, John and Brett are electronic musicians, and, uh, I was the human element in the electronic um, you know, atmosphere, the electronic domain. Um, it, and, and so that was my first kind of feeling like I was humanizing an electronic environment. But then, um, you know, that, that, that was something I started reflecting upon. And I looked at the very first thing that I kind of became, um, I guess, known for in a, in a ground way. And that was the Walls Are Bleeding project, which was started out as a cassette mail art project. And that was a big thing, you know, for a while in the 80s with this mail art and all these cassette artists. And so I've got distribution through Eon and, and Colorado, and I got reviews and you know, underground magazines in Japan. And, and so it was like this whole thing where you would create, you know, um, 
you know, I don't know, noise or experimental, and then you would send it through the mail when you'd artistically, you know, uh, ravage your cassette, you know. So I was part of that. And uh, while the bleeding was um, a multiple voices run through contact mics that, you know, were strapped down all over your body mm-hmm. and, and then run through a scully. And the scully was at WREK, Georgia Tech's radio station. And so this, I was able to have access to the scully. And the studio radio station at that time, I haven't been there in years, so I don't know what it's like now, but at that time it was run on carts. So these were like, basically they almost like, they looked like, um, you know, they looked like old, uh, old eight-track you know, uh, uh, tapes. I mean, they were they were mm. like carts, and they would shift down. So the whole radio programming was prearranged, right? So that, so you really didn't have to have a live DJ there, except when they had a live show. So I was so that's how I was able to get into the studio and not interfere with anything that the station was broadcasting. So I used a Scully, and I used feedback. So this was definitely an electronic, um, you know, alienating environment with a whole lot of voices and it was really cool to do all these delays so i do like a scream or like a a, like a syllable and then i could go back and and layer over that and this was something that um i think later on i mean i don't know when she started doing but certain people have started doing this work or started doing it around the same time but i was unaware of them to me it was just um you know just trying to figure out what to do to express what I was exploring then, which was psychological breakdown. And so I was exploring, you know, getting yourself to, to the point of where you were just um, basically just kind of lost and just kind of rocking back and forth crazy. So I did this whole performance for like, I don't know, four hours or something. And it was all recorded. And then it was edited down. And they played it on the on the radio, and I even played they even played the short version of it, which was like five or six minutes um, at lunch hour when people were listening to mm-hmm. music on their lunch hour, and the people were calling the station all upset because they thought it was real. You know, they didn't, they thought it was someone being you know murdered or something, <laughs> and it was and it was just this edited. So see, that was again that was the first entry entry into. And that's pre-swans, so that was a, an entry into like the the the, the otherworldly, you know, um, atmosphere, and then the human voice penetrating that atmosphere. That, that's very cool. You had kind of a, a War of the Worlds kind of moment on the radio. <laughs> I know, I know. It was, it was really great. It was. We were. We yeah. You know, we at that time the, the, there was a little group of us, and we were uh, very interested in subversion and anarchy, and you know, we did a lot of things that were crazy, like 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 uh, running around and like, and then some of some of them were like spray painting billboards and you know, spray painting the side of the Kroger grocery store, and then um, I think the most intense one was stenciling on the sidewalks. And the one stencil I remember the most was late at night going to, I don't know if it's still there, but it was the uh, mental health and the Georgia mental health facility or something ever in, in DeKalb County. And it has this big iron gate when you're entering it. And then there's like a, a sidewalk in front of it, like an entryway. And then, then some of them got down there and, and they spray painted five psychiatrics and they spelled it T-R-I-C-K-S. And so that stayed there, you know, before they got the maintenance people to come out and blast it off 
but we were that was just those were fun times, you know, and they were they were times of exploring um I guess how far you could go. Fortunately, I never got arrested, so mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so so I, I've read online that you uh, you know were born in Mississippi, and in this period while you're making these uh, tapes for trading, you're in Georgia. Um, I, mm-hmm. I'm wondering just because you know your your early stuff is so emergent, and there's not really anything you can point to before it to kind of give it some kind of background or context or something. What, what kind of music when you were younger was like the first thing that kind of influenced what would become, you know, either, either thematically or musically, uh, what you do now. Yeah, well that's, you know, that is something I've been asked and I, I don't really know how to, how to answer other than, um, my father was extremely musical. He was very talented. He was uh, a visual artist as well as uh, he could play guitar. He could play the organ. We had this big Hammond organ in the house. He had a beautiful singing voice. And I think that he, uh, really wanted to determine when I was, you know, like a toddler. He, He really wanted to, to, to determine if I was musical because my brothers were not and, and my mother was not. And so I think he was trying to see if I was, you know, tone deaf or if I was musical. <laughs> and I remember him, you know, hitting notes, playing notes on the organ and then asking me to to repeat that sound. And I think he was just overwhelmed with joy when he heard that I was repeating the the, the tones. So then, see, he started encouraging me, and and so at that point it was lessons and choirs and then a vocal coach and oh, on and on and on to the point where I just kind of started resenting it because it became laborious when none of these teachers failed to recognize originality or I was punished for being um, expressive. And I remember uh, one of the organ uh, lessons with this very strict teacher. Um, I'm reading the music and playing it, and she tells me that I'm putting too much feeling into the way I'm playing it. And at that point, I I really started rebelling about uh, about these lessons, these formal lessons. And I actually kind of grew to hate it that I was being told that I had to play by the by the you know, by the notation, by the books, by the, and then, and then the, and then the next thing was going to the vocal coach. Uh, and then her first thing she said to me when she had me sing some stuff was she said, um, you're singing incorrectly when you, you're singing like a pop artist and that's not really music and you have to, you know, get all the breath out of your voice. And so that was the other thing I rebelled against. I didn't last very long with that teacher because because that was that should, they were training me to do Gilbert and Sullivan, which is light opera. And so, to the time I um, met Michael, you know, with singing, I'm not talking about the screaming, all that weird stuff I was doing, but the singing. I was actually singing um, with like an arched vernacular, almost like a British accent, and I was mm-hmm. singing in a way that was over overly uh, with syllables overly pronounced, you know, and and um, you know, just it, he 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 was like, whoa, you know, and he said, "You're an American, sing like an American." He said, "Drop the G's instead of going," you know, it's gonna. And he he was really kind of um, responsible for 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 encouraging me to 
kind of tap into southern blues based uh, uh, style of singing uh, when when uh, when the song called for it, and so that's what led to you know oh my god it's all over the place it's when she breathes that's if, you, if a person from the south hears that they're going to recognize that that way of singing is mm-hmm. referencing Appalachian dialect black eyed dog I mean it's just endless and endless and so so I think that um, I'd have to say he he really set me on that. On, on that path, and the other, the other, only other path with that kind of way I was singing would be like the way some of the goth singers sing, you know, or some of the, some mm-hmm. of the people. And, and it's like it's not really my, it's not my world. So I think that, um, you know, he he really Americanized uh, and, and put me in touch with southern uh, my southern roots, which, you know, I'd heard all the street performers and NOLA, and I had been exposed to, to all of that as a kid. So I think that, um, you know, to answer you, it was probably a combination of New Orleans and, and, and the street performers and, um, you know, and just my father constantly playing music around me, you know, all the time. And I think that this, these two things is what kind of opened up, you know, my hearing and then the, the first big jarring from my hearing came when I was attracted to, um, you know, just just rock music and and uh, the more expressive kind of free quality that I heard in rock music. And I think after that, the big the big gate that opened in in my head for for sound was when I befriended the DJs at WREK, and I uh, that's when I first heard Swans. But I also heard SPK, and, you know, I heard all kinds of... Einstein and Denard Balton, and I heard all kinds of, of groups on the, on the show there at REC. And so this is a portal that, you you know, you can either enter or you're not. And so what you start doing... And then, of course, I was taking music classes in school. So I was, I was hearing Schoenberg and, you know, I was hearing uh, Atonal, going to John Cage performances. And so and, and Martin, Martin Sabotnik, who actually came to Emory and did a performance, and I was there. And so, so I think that when you start listening to Bartok, Schoenberg, you start studying this in school, uh, and then you combine that with hearing you know, the industrial uh, uh, music that, that was happening in the 80s. I think that this, this it opens to where you really have an expansive vocabulary for music. And so the thing that to me is important is just constantly expanding that 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 vocabulary to where you hear, you know what I mean? You, you, you hear things that you, you could close your mind to, but you're going to open your mind and, and, and let and let it come in. And that led to, when I was living in New York, that led to going to opera and, um, you know, embracing Maria Collis and just, you know, just really um, just kind of seeing the value in, in all these different forms, all these different uh, languages and music. Yeah, that, that's, that's so interesting. Um because you know you are kind of combining this ultra academic stuff with this ultra raw emotional stuff um and i mm-hmm. think that somehow those those two seemingly opposites kind of combine and have a lot more in common with each other than uh you know might be readily available i've heard you uh discuss you know being a fan of swans before you you joined the band um, and one thing I wanted to know about, uh, your, your time with swans is, uh, 
you know, I, I think a lot of people consider the albums that you were on kind of a, a golden period um, of Swans, and there was definitely a shift uh, in tone and kind of a, a, a more, you know, expansive kind of vocabulary that Swans started using once you started uh, contributing to them. Um, and so what mm-hmm. I want to know is less about the, the mechanics of joining Swans and playing with them and stuff, but kind of uh, I'd like to know... Was th- was there a plan when you when you joined? Were you, were you thinking, this is what I can contribute. This is what I can do to make this band, you know, something bigger, um, bigger in the sense of expansiveness, uh, or was it kind of an intuitive thing where once you started working with them, y'all kind of shifted around each other? Well, first of all, um, the uh, what I would say. And of course, everything is just my comprehension or my perspective, right? I'm not saying anything other than it's my perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, Swans was, was not a group. It was, it was Michael. And the people that I worked with for all the years I was in it constantly came and went. There was never a consistent lineup. And from the time I hit New York in 84, I was the only consistent person until he decided to terminate the project. So everybody left. So they weren't on albums, they weren't on tours. They came and I stayed in because I had changed my entire life to be part of that. And and I changed a whole lot and it was extremely... uh, I guess a massive sacrifice on my part because I left a, a fairly uh, nice lifestyle to get, to go to up there and to live in what they called the bunker, which was a, a basically a cement box with no heat and no air conditioning and a, a little um, you know hole that you would slide back. It wasn't really a window, mm. and um, you know it, it was very brutal in the winter and the summer <laughs> and um you know and there was no bathing there was nothing and so the, so michael and of course i was there at the time we turned that into a other than raw space which they were using as rehearsal um you know it, it, it became where we lived as well as rehearsed and so it was hardcore i mean it was like putting up you know, putting up sheetrock and, 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 and laying in the pipe, digging the hole to create the shower. And, you know, there were rats running in the ceiling and it was a big cement door that, I'm sorry, a solid steel door that you would open. It was a huge door. I've never seen a door like this, like a door you'd see in a meat locker, like a big, like a big <laughs> steel door. And it had a police lock on the inside, as well as two deadbolts. So the police lock... You know, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like, it's like big metal bars that when you turn the key, these metal bars slide across. So you have that as well as two uh, deadbolts. So that shows you how dangerous this area was. So, so I think, you know, when I went up there, I don't know, someone's calling me. When I went up there, um, I, uh, I, why are they called? Okay, I'm sorry. When I went up there, um, uh, I I did not know. Um, this is really distracting. Just a minute. No problem. Okay, they stopped. Uh, when when I went up there, um, I, I, to to be perfectly honest, um, I 
really visualize myself as uh, buying and playing bass in, in, in Swant. And I had talked to Michael, and he had said that he would like to have two bass players. And so I went up there fully intended on not singing, just playing bass. And, and, and this was the brutal era. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that is what I visualized doing. And so then um, things changed in the group. On the 84 tour, which I was on, I was not on as a performer. I was on as like a, a, a gopher roadie. I mean, it was a brutal job anyway. <laughs> they were out of control then. You know, they were chain smokers. They were all drunks. I mean, it was... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so and here I was a, a I was a boxer, I was straight edge, and you know I I, I mean I was a I was a vegan straight edge boxer. I mean you can imagine I didn't smoke, I didn't do drugs, I did nothing, and didn't drink. So you can imagine what that was like in the van. So anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was hard for me, but um, I I think that you know Michael saw me as being tough because I was like that and strong, and 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 really. Um, you know, I wasn't dismissed because I think I, I uh, hopefully came across as somebody who 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 could uh, endure, you know, in situation and and not complain too much. So, um, but uh, that was the way it was. So then, so then, what happened during that tour was Harry um, quit, Rolly quit, the bass and drummer. So. Then it was, well, I want something to take the place of the tapes because what Harry did on stage in addition to bass was he rolled the cassette, he rolled the volume up and down. They had a cassette player on stage and he would roll the volume of these just sound samples and he would, you know, just sounds that they had recorded, or mm-hmm. roars, whatever. And he, would, and he would roll that up and down. So Michael said, well, let's replace that cassette and there's this new thing coming out. It's the sampling keyboard. So we're going to create these sounds, and you will play those live. So it shifted to buying um, the Mirage and Sonic Mirage sampling keyboard, which is very primitive in those days. It did not have a screen. It had a parameters. It had a whole book of parameters. So it was all numerical. So you'd have to load in the the, the operating system, and then you'd have to manipulate all these numbers to try to get the sound that you wanted. And this was a, and you could insert the recorded sound. Let's say you record a guitar or something or you recorded a bone or human voice. Well, then you had to go in and manipulate it visually looking at, at numerical settings. So that became my job <laughs> and, then, and then to perform that. So that was the very first live show, which was for me, 85. And that was a show in LA with, I don't know, Sonic Youth, a bunch of people were there. Uh, Rollins was there and, you know, Black Flag, even Jesus and Mary Chain were there in the audience. And it was just like this big festival. All the cool cats were there, right? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so this was my first show. And they had rented this Masonic for me. And this is how I learned the hard way when I became like a beta tester for this machine and took it on tour. But it was not a roadworthy machine. It's a very, it was a very delicate, um, you know, studio machine, in my opinion, because this thing is rented, sound check, it seems okay. And then when we went to go on stage at this festival in LA, um, it, it malfunctioned. 
so so what I had to do was I had to un- unjam the circuitry inside the keyboard live in front of the audience. And so in order to do that, I had to take my fist and I had to pound the keyboard to make it unjam. Wow. <laughs> so the whole show, whole show, I'm standing there doing that. And the audience afterwards thought that that was, even the reviews that came out, they thought that was part of it. They thought that that was deliberately performance, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, she's so ferocious. He's slamming the keyboard. <laughs> and instead, instead, it was me trying to maintain a poker face and not show that that was not what was supposed to be happening. Uh, instead of freaking out and looking desperate and upset, I'm going to be a soldier up here and get through it. So that's what I did, is I continuously unjammed the circuitry. So that's what I'm playing. So then you can begin to see how things morph, because now I'm on the keyboard. So we did a whole tour with this this blanking blanker and <laughs> and then it, it was to the point where I had to buy like you know a massive road case for it that was very expensive in addition to the sampling keyboard and then I had to like you know we, for example in Amsterdam the hotels like we would stay at this hotel Quentin in Amsterdam right on the canal okay that was where all the bands stayed the artists stayed so the staircase literally goes straight up I don't know if you've been over there, but the, the stairs just go straight up. Yeah, I have. It's, so, it's rough. <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway, I had, to, I had to literally lay on my stomach. and like, I was pulling and then climb over it and then shove it up these steps because it was so delicate. It could not handle temperature changes. And it was so expensive in those days that everybody was afraid that someone would break into the van and steal it. So that meant... Yours truly had to bring it into her hotel room every night. And so sometimes this was extremely difficult <laughs> because you'd have to shove this thing up the stairs. And no one ever helped me because the attitude was, um, you know, you have to take care of your own, you know, stuff, you know. You, 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 you know. And, and, of course, I had to because you don't play the female card in, in a band like that you know you don't play you know oh i'm a female help me no because i had was a bo- I had been a boxer and, and weightlifter so obviously i never asked for help and i loaded all this shit up and down these these steps and elevators and everything else so so after the experience of the mirage and this thing i can't even tell you what hell hell this was but this thing was taken on the famous eastern european tour we were the first American band to go over there. You know, we played what was then Yugoslavia. You know, it was a hardcore. And we stayed in unbelievable places. And then we, when we played what was then Czechoslovakia, um, you know, the red, the, the, the red flags, the, the hammer and the, and sickle, the, the, the flags were hanging in front of the buildings, flapping in the breeze at three in the morning when we got through the border. How we got through the border, I think, was a winky-winky. At any rate, <laughs> we got in there, and we were illegally there. Like, in other words, we were not supposed to be doing shows because the shows were not sanctioned by the government. And so we played in underground venues like wine, former uh, wine cellars and bunkers, and we were smuggled around, you know. So all these shows are word of mouth. And so this keyboard... Uh, God, I mean, it, it would, we would play places where it would start raining down paint chips onto the keyboard and get inside 
inside the circuitry, you inside the, in between the keys, and, and then I, mm-hmm. and so finally I had to erect a tent. I had to erect a tent and put that over the keyboard to play it because you know our decibel level was so huge it destroyed every place we played. And 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 then of course um, we play outdoor venues and it would start raining and I mean it was unbelievable. And then this culminated in the the kings kings of independence uh, bus tour. Oh my God! Throughout Germany at that, <laughs> and of course this was an infamous tour. I slept uh, I slept up front on the shoulder of Nick Cave and 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 everyone behind us. You know, it was Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Crime and City Solution, Swans, um, The Fall were part of that tour. It was anyway. This bus was just full of. Uh, uh, well, this bus, I, I won't go, I won't, uh, I won't uh, verbalize it, but I think you can imagine what it was like. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> so at the time, um, I had not been around, uh, I had not been around heroin use like that before. And so it was a very intense, uh, intense um, experience for me. And um, so I think that it culminated in this one show in, in Hamburg and uh, uh what happened and now there's different stories the promoter says she did not oversell the venue and yet some of the people that were there musicians say that they heard she oversold the venue i don't know the truth all i know is the promoter says she did not oversell the venue so something happened to where hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids were not able to get in to see the the show so they what they decided to do was to um, do a have a riot and so they um, turned over a police car, and they set it on fire. And so all this was going on outside the venue when Swans was on stage. And so what happened was um, there was uh, and, and before us had been um, had been uh, butthole surfers on, on 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 stage. And so what they had done was they had um, they had they had a bunch of uh, smoke. I guess it was oil based smoke for their show and so this stuff is is deadly to um you know electronics and so this smoke machine got into the akai sampler that one of them was playing and i remember i don't know if it was gibby who it was but i remember we were waiting for them to get off they got off and the smoke was so thick to the stage and gibby took up the, picked up this akai sampler i was playing that as well and, 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 and at the time i was accessing the sampler through to the keyboard so he um he had picked it up and this thing was pretty expensive so i remember i remember i think it was nine hundred dollars anyway he picked it up and he threw it down to the ground just kicked it because it malfunctioned throughout their show and he warned me he said warning you know this thing's gonna fucking your your sample's gonna you know, malfunction you know during the show so that warning was very helpful to me because when we went out there i realized that this stuff was grease in the air, the smoke machine. Mm-hmm. And I realized that that would damage the diskettes that I had to insert into the sampler to load the sound banks. Cause I had several of those throughout the show. So anyway, so what I started doing was, is I, I covered up everything. I had a towel I co- that I was supposed to wipe sweat off my face with. I, I used that to put on the diskettes. And then I would be very, very careful to wipe my hands and to make sure that none of that oil in the air was getting into those diskettes. And so it only malfunctioned once instead of over and over and over again. But it did malfunction once, and I 
for the life of me, could not figure out how to unjam it and get it to prop to to um, function properly. And I remember Michael coming over and just glaring at me like, ah, you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like there's nothing I could do about it, you know. And and so that was the only only one time during the show that, but it didn't destroy the entire unit, you know. And I wasn't about to pick it up and throw it onto the stage. So this shows you the hellish experience of doing this kind of quote punk kind of quote tours when you're dealing with expensive electronics so this was um not something i wanted to keep on dealing with and and so finally it was changed to like the yamaha as a slave to the sampler and then you know midi verb and all this rack mound effects and i have to set all that crap up and then you know wire it all up and unwire it and then when we finally had enough money to have a roadie oh that was heaven because the <laughs> roadie would do all that wiring, unwiring of all that stuff, you know, and and pack it up for me. Instead of doing a show, you've been a performer, and then you've got to come out on stage and 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 you know, sh- you know, wrap up your own stuff and schlep it out of there. You know, it doesn't look very <laughs> glamorous. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that was when I you know be- be- came to really love um, when we were able to have roadies. But so this so, so now. To start shifting with um, Michael, I guess hearing me sing in the in the rehearsal studio. I was working on my own music at the time, and and my own, and I had all kinds of things I had worked on that I was performing. And, and he and then he, um, I had sent him a, um, I had made a compilation uh, a tape cassette of of me on my various singing episodes throughout my um, you know years of performing. And 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 I want and the first thing I sent him, of course, was walls. The walls are bleeding. Mm. And then um, he didn't he didn't really respond to that. He responded to the singing. And then he's he started telling me, you know, to, he thought it was I sounded too British, and then I needed to sound more American. And then um, he invited me to sing. Um, the first thing I did was the blood curdling scream on the 12 inch. I think it's the time is money. I'm not sure. It's either time or time is money or screw. I think it's time is money. So it mm. opens up the 12 inch opened up with me screaming. So ironically live and in the studio before the seer, when I did little bit of stuff on that, the first thing I ever did was vocally was the blood curdling scream. And the last thing that I did was, um, uh, the guttural scream, which was <laughs> at the end of, of I Crawled, which ended in me in sub-bass, sub-bass, like, you know, Cookie Monster, sub, mm-hmm. sub-bass, hardcore yelling, and all that was all that was vocal performance. There was no effects. It was all just my technique of how to how to, you know, be a be a fragile little girl to to, you know, a monster at the end in one song. So it was ironic that those this bookend, you know, both with with that, instead of singing, they're both the, the whole that whole span of careers bookend by blood curdling high scream to a low guttural scream. So I think he sort of saw that as as, an, as um, you know an encyclopedia set of voice. And so then, he, so then I start singing on greed, holy money, and and then um, he, this discussion of doing a solo record of me. Uh, of doing songs and, and showcasing the voice. So that leads to Blood, Women, Roses, which comes before Children of God. 
So then by the time we did Children of God, that's why there was me, you know, present doing more singing, like in my garden and, and, and you know, black male on, and, and the song Children of God, all, you know, in, in the Children of God album, because he had, he had confidence at that point of how far he could push me, what I could do as a producer. And in my garden was particularly um, intense because he wanted it just extremely breathy and fragile. And so I can remember, like, you know, how difficult that was to be as breathy as possible, you know, and just as soft, your mouth right up on the microphone as possible. And the mic had to be turned up so much to capture that performance that anytime anyone moved around or anything at all, it was picked up by the mic. So you have to do it all over again, right? Because it wasn't punched in. Everything was live. The way that I worked, we worked then was we didn't punch in. It was live all the way through. So see, you can see things opening up there to where now you are um, going away from the electronics to the keyboard to, to the voice. So that's how things kind of unraveled and how it began. Now, if you're talking about the melody, it's because I came up there with a background in melody and musical uh, composition and harmony. I'd been in every choir of the world, so I knew how to sing harmony. And um, so you're talking about going into a band, you know, um, that doesn't use music. <laughs> so, so, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, you can 100% see, I completely changed the sound of the entire band. You can 100% see that. So I, I definitely introduced melody. I introduced um, singing. Um, I taught Michael how to sing. I used to shout. I, I mean, it's just very obvious. Now, I think that it's because you're tapping into the skill set of someone who's arrived on the scene. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, with yeah, yeah. I mean, all you have to do is listen at the timeline. You know, pre me, there I am, and so you can see melodies start creeping into it, and then the culminating blow and roses and the skin project, and then the, the children of God album. I mean, it just becomes more and more obvious. And the thing is, is that you know. There were times when we had guest musicians, and I would uh, sing, you know, the, what I wanted them to play. And this went, I mean, even on, like, Burning World, I mean, the goddamn the sun. I mean, I, I sang that that melody, the strings, the violins are playing there. I sang that to them to, to play that. Now, this, this, then you enter into the, to the, um, you know the 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 the, the problem, <laughs> and the problem was I wasn't getting credit. I wasn't getting credit for arrangement. I wasn't getting credit for melody. I wasn't getting credit, and so this uh, became a point of contention and a point of a lot of arguing um, because I began to feel like I was never getting any credit, and and I cared about getting credit, obviously, and I think that it was very strange how how. Um, you know, that just became a point of contention. And I think, you know, he began to say, Michael began to say, oh, well, if I can play play it on, on two chords on the guitar and sing, then that's, I've written the song. So even if you've added melody, even if you've told other people what to do and, and, and changed the arrangement, you're not getting songwriting credit. So I'd be, you know, very angry, like saying, well, I need arrangement credit. Mm-hmm. Give me some kind of credit on this, you know. It's not like you did all this because you didn't. I did, 
And so it was, it was two of us together. And I think that, um, you know, this, this became a point of, of uh, a lot of fighting, a lot of fighting, a lot of arguing. And and um, if you notice, he, he after Tulna God, when he gave songwriting credit, even to Ted playing drums on New Mind, this was because the band ganged up on him and they demanded the songwriting credit. And then the point of contention for me there is in my garden. I wrote that song when I was going to college, not mm-hmm. the words, but the music. And and I had a piano in my 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 room, and um, I lived off campus. I had my piano, and he, um, and and so then Al is sitting there in Cornwall practicing his fingering on the bass, looking at TV. He's just mindlessly practicing, his, and I walk, but happened to walk by him and said, "Hey, that fits into my song." That pattern. Will you? Would you mind recording that um, in the studio? You know, because um, we were all there living in Cornwall, the the Sonnen Studios. We lived there to record the album. So he said, "Oh, you know, okay." So he went down there, and he claims he didn't even know what song he was recording to. He was just playing the fingering pattern. So then, out of the blue, much to my shock. He gets songwriting credit for in my garden, and that that bass part is not what I wrote. And so, yeah. so see, this is how things went. This is how things went um, then when you're trying to hold the band together, and of course it failed because it did not hold together. Yeah, you you mentioned before that you know a lot of people in yourself included viewed it as you know Michael's project. I, I'm wondering, uh, because you, you know, you contributed so much and there were, you know, so many issues where your contributions kind of got, uh, you know, removed from that. And you've done so many like collaborations with people where, you know, it's you and a band or you and another, uh, you know, artist. And I wonder if that influenced that in any way. Um, like you, you, Sorry, I'm I'm getting a little rambly. Uh, what what I mean to ask is, um, you know, your music and your art as kind of a singular vision that you know stands alone and is, uh, you know, kept kept distinct when you do these collaborations. Um, did that kind of arise from those issues with uh, Swans back in the day? I don't know. I got mixed messages the whole time I was in Swans. Um, he at one point said that there could be no Swans without me. And then at one point he said he wanted me to sing half of the vocals. And it, so I would get these messages of being encouraged to be co, uh, you know, leader or whatever. And then, and then it, it just never worked out because even on the last tour in rehearsals, he's, he's interrupting me in rehearsal telling me how think and at that point you know i really didn't feel i needed that <laughs> mm-hmm. and, so, and so so um and then of course the ultimate was um with my interpretation of i crawled um because it was his decision to make it the last tour and the end of the entire thing at that time um, I decided to run with that. And so as the tour progressed in Europe, because you know, they went to Europe after the U.S., it became more and more, um, I suppose a word to use would be theatrical, but to me it was just more and more um, going through the different um, characters in the story that I saw in the lyrics. So it became more and more 
intense, and I began to add the lost little melody as it's a transition in the, in the mental state of the character. And so I knew he could not fire me at that point, and I knew that I could get away with what I wanted to do. And so I continued to, um, to develop that song. So I now look back on that, and I see that as being, um, I think, the greatest, um, <clears throat> the greatest thing I ever did in the group. And so I think that, that it was me uh, finally being able to fully express, you know, the passion and the intensity live that, that I, 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 I felt as a performer. Um, because, you know, live on stage, I wasn't allowed to... Um, I wasn't allowed to move in the way I wanted to. Uh, when I sang, uh, initially he told me to be like a statue uh, with my hands by my side and to be very still and to be very quick. And so, so you know, and this would be to contrast with him where he would be, you know, my God, wearing wearing stained long underwear or completely completely bottomless, thrusting his ass into the audience. I mean, this is the band I joined. <laughs> I joined an extremely theatrical band, and uh, you know, so it was kind of ironic to to be telling me, you know, I was too theatrical, or I uh, had to had to had to uh, be more restrained, tone it down. Whereas, you know, good lord, I'm not really sure if you look at the early footage of what it was like and going all the way up through the '80s. I, I really don't see how anyone could be more extreme. I mean, other than Iggy Pop, he was <laughs> at that level of extremity. And uh, so, so see, this is all very um, confusing because you're getting mixed signals about it. And this is a lot of the dynamic. And I think now that the tension that was created um, is what led to some really amazing live shows. Uh, but that doesn't mean that when you get off the stage that things are are, uh, are going to be calm or going to be okay. And <clears throat> I think that level of intensity is something that um, he probably uh, is very aware of still exists. And so I think that this is a lot of why, um, you know, he wants to be in charge. He wants to be completely in charge. And so he's not going to have anybody involved that, that uh, is going to... Um, you know, stand up for, stand up to him. And so I think that I'm the kind of person that I don't like to, uh, I, I'm not, a, I'm a leader, I'm not a follower. And so this is, this is, this is why when I collaborate with people, it has to be equal footing, equal ground. You know, I'm not, I, don't tell me what to do. You know, I, and I haven't, I've never been treated that way, I have not been treated that way by anyone. That I've collaborated with, I've not. No one has ever. They've all been. It's all been equal respect. And when I started doing my own tours uh, and working with other people, whether it was, you know, Neurosis or Justin Broadwick, I I, I felt that, you know, that I was being treated with tremendous amounts of respect. Yeah, and I, I, rehearsing with Neurosis. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I, I was just going to say, uh, that was kind of what, what made me think of that before, was kind of you and Neurosis being billed as, you know, Neurosis and uh, you did that record with, uh, I, I think they're called uh, Bila, that that metal project. Bila, yeah. Bila, sorry. Um, yeah. But it was, you know, Bila and, and very, like, clear, upfront branding. Um mm -hmm. You know, and I, yeah, I think that, well, that reflects a lot in 
the collaborative nature of those projects? Well, you know, we, we Michael and I had that. We had that during the Skin Project. You know, we did Blood, Women, Roses, and then we did Shame, Humility, Revenge. So the first one, I'm the lead vocal. The second one, he, he was the lead vocal. And this was a collaboration between the two of us. And it was, and I thought it was great. I mean, I love those albums, and um, I think that we worked together really, really well as, as just the two of us. And, and we would have guest people come in and play, you know, but they would play, you know, we would tell them what to play and how to, how to play it, and then they could nuance it, you know, like, like, and so the thing is, is that we, this to me was, was, um, you know, an example of a collaboration that was a lot, uh, in my opinion, a lot better, a lot, a lot more, uh, or more equal. And, uh, and of course we did another album. We did, you know, 10 songs for another world. We did, we did. And so we, this, the skin project to me was, was, um, was a, a joyous, you know, because of the fact that it wasn't all this tension in front of the other people, you know? And, and I think that he didn't want anybody to, um, I guess, uh, sass him back or whatever. I mean, to me, it would just be standing up for yourself, asking a question, you know, and, and then being shouted down, in rehearsal. So I think that um, it had a lot to do with, I don't know, just, just ego perception, dominance perception in front of the other man. I don't really know what it was, but I do know that he was a lot different when we were working alone together on the Skin album. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of leaders, you know, like my approach to working in a collab situation is, um, matter if it's one or many musicians, it's, it's you know, my, my strategy is to get them to love me. And then there's the other Machiavellian strategy, which is to get them to, to fear you. And so I think that to say, you know, you're afraid or you're full of anger, that could be effective for some leaders. But I think I'm more comfortable with um, the people I work with to actually, um, you know, have, have fond fond feelings for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I I encourage I encourage everyone I've ever worked with. I encourage them to shine. And I encourage them to be alone, you know, to to do something without me that that makes them shine in front of the audience, you know. And and I feel good that way and I don't know any other way to be. I can't be the 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 you know, person that takes all the glory and the people I'm working with. I mean, that's ridiculous. To me, the more that glorified those people you're working with are, that shines back on you. So I've always done this. I generally have people, um, you know, do their own show before I join them. You know, I let them shine during their own material before I join them on stage. And, and, um, I think with the last, the the show that we were going to do that was canceled, um, Emerson Williams and I, he was going, instead of doing that, we were going to have him do his material in the context of the set. And so see, that even gives it even more respect. Because instead of opening and then performing with me, it's like we're all bringing one set and then I am doing your material in addition to you doing mine. And so that to me was even more democratic. Yeah, there's so much trust involved in that. Um that it seems like it would definitely foster like a giving kind of, uh, like you said, democratic, uh, environment. Um, it's actually kind of, uh, is something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, so I know 
most of your solo stuff um, more recently has been, you know, you play almost all the instruments, you produce it, record it, sing it, stuff like that. Um, some of the earlier stuff did have more, you know, I don't know if they were session musicians or friends or, you know, collaborators or anything, but because you have such kind of a, a an artistic and expressive kind of uh, output, I'm wondering when you're in the studio with other people playing songs on a on a one of your solo records, what is kind of your level of production of you know guidance and uh, you know helping them kind of do it, or do you kind of let let people interpret it how they will and then edit it as you will? I'm trying to remember the um, last time. I mean, I haven't for years. I haven't. Uh, I have performed with other people, but I haven't recorded with them. Uh, I think the last um, the last thing was with working with Helen Money. I can't remember before then, and 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 I guess uh, Father Burphy and I did a, a you know like a twelve inch, you know, one song on one side, one on the other. So um, that's you know it's different from live. I mean, you talk about recording. So I think that I think that I would take direction on their. Um, their song and then they would listen to me on, on you know, what, what to do on my song. And so it's just sort of an equal, um, input. Uh, but I will say that, um, um, for example, the last, uh, thing when I did something for someone else, Joseph von Weissum, he, he, um, sent me the song and, he said uh, he wanted me to, you know, to match, to sing with him. And so then I replied, okay, you know, do you want a harmony? Do you want, do you want me to precisely match your syllable technique? And then it is a part where he speaks. Do you want me to precisely match the way that you have spoken? Yes. So in that, in that way, you know, I've got been given the direction and I've been, so I add, you know, a harmony or add my, my take to it, but I look at the, I look at the file readout that he's on his voice on the computer and then I, I can, I can match that visually with my voice, just looking at how his, the frequencies go up and down, you know, and so, so, so that's, you know, that's me, you know, fitting into someone else's, um, someone else's vision of what they want me to do. Um, so, I mean, I think in terms of my own albums, my own solo albums, um, I will have to say I absolutely love working by myself. And I really prefer it to everything else. I really don't like collaborating at all anymore. And I get asked a lot, and these are from total strangers, the sending messages, you know, on social media or email. And it's, and it's kind of exhausting because you don't know what to say, you know. And I think, I think finally what I'm saying is I only work with people I know. And, and I think that um, that comes from, you know, from experiences that I kind of questioned why I was even doing it, you know, because it's like you, you have to, if you don't know the person and you don't have a sense of trust with them, you have no idea what you're walking into, you know. Mm-hmm. And, so I think I think that um, it's not worth it, you know. And, and in terms of my own my own stuff, I love working alone. I have the initial concept, you know, and I you know, initial kind of inspiration or whatever, and and then um, you know the ideas may completely change during the course of of recording. 
and they'll and I will get rid of things and replace it and start over and scratch it and start over and so so that that method is is the way I feel the most comfortable now, and I have something finished it's been finished for a while that was recorded during the illusory sessions, and consoling sounds told me to cap the time because they wanted to they were concerned about quality on the vinyl release, and so i i I ditched you know half of what I recorded. Um, and so that other half is, is waiting, you know, and I've been waiting for the right moment because right now everything is just so, um, you know, it's just hard to say, Hey, here's my new, <laughs> you know, cause it's like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I will, I will, I will get it out there, but you know, it's, it's just, it's just, you know, I'm just very sensitive to, to the things that are happening right now with everybody's lives. And so, so, but I am going to get that out there. But again, it's something I did completely by myself. And I, that's where I feel the most comfortable is just recording uh, completely alone. Now, having said that, I'm embarking on another, um, collaboration but as i told to him as i said to him the only way that this can work is if it's not a jarbo album because a jarbo album means she's by herself so it's going to have to be your name and my name so see that's different than a jarbo solo album that's the other person's name is is releasing it it's kind of like a black mouth i mean that is not my solo album so see it's like it Mm -hmm. has to be it has to be a name other than my own for for, for to work with somebody else now because I feel so intimately connected to what I'm doing that I don't want to I don't want to I just want it to be my world when it's my own name because what I'm exploring is are things that I'm you know I'm 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 studying and that's that's primarily primarily um, you know Buddhism Tibetan Buddhism and so so it's my way of expressing. Um, you know, intimate experiences, and, and I can't share that. I can't have anybody come into that because they're not on my path. Mm-hmm. So it's it's my path. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I was I was actually going to ask you about that, um, not specifically uh, Buddhism, but um, just kind of you you have such a sense of uh, like ritual around some of your music. Um, and such a sense of like some kind of spiritual center um, around your music, and I, I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because uh, I w- I wasn't sure exactly what that was, but uh, it's very cool that uh, now we I can look through it at through the lens of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Is there any certain like specific tenet or um, you know any specific uh, kind of concept? of that particular form of spirituality well, the, that you're kind of the, focusing on? The cut of the warrior was, was, uh, based on, um, you know, the reason why the, the image of the, uh, Buddhist nun on the front ha- has the cuts in her back. The reason for that is because it's, it's, it's a metaphor. It's literally showing the repeated efforts to, um, cut through the ego to destroy the ego. So it's it's a very um, it's a it's a title uh, an image of complete humility. Of here's how many times I've attempted it and failed, and so it's an admission of 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 um, humility and 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 failure to to uh, I, I'm on this path and I and 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 you know how many times do I do I fall down? 
So that was the whole message behind um, The Cut of the Warrior. And I did four songs for that. It was supposed to be an EP. And then the other people involved in the production, like Byla, and they, they wanted to do remixes and interpretations. So that's how that happened. But but for um, Illusory, that was upon studying this concept of the illusion of self and is there a soul. And so the 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 whole first song, which... I noted Metal Injection, and they've been very nice to me. You know, they've said good things about Co the Warrior, and then they gave the Illusory a ten out of ten, which is pretty great. You know, and and they and but the problem with the review, which was extremely glowing, and I really appreciated their their attention, um, was uh, that the, they said the first song was an answer to "You See Through Me," Michael's song on on Drangland. It is not uh, it is not a, a, a song to Michael. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is a song to the self. It's 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 me or the the, the narrator or whatever singing to themselves, asking themselves, you know, are you authentic or are you an illusion? You know, are are you healing from your from your trauma, you know, or is time itself an illusion? And so then at the end, you know, the, the, the singer answers, she answers, you know, I'm still here, I'm here, I'm her. And so see those again, the, the, um, you know the the, the the failure to uh, to destroy the, the sense of self, the the the, the failure to to uh, to relinquish the ego, and so 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 what I do is is when people say, oh, "Are you a Buddhist?" I'm not. I'm a student, and I just study it. I can't call myself that because I wasn't raised in in that part of the world, and so to me, Westerners enter an interest in Buddhism uh, as psychotherapy. And so I, I was see, my, see myself as entering into my interest in it, um, and seeking a, a, again seeking a, a help, you know, for, for for problems, for emotional problems, and and so as psychotherapy. So so that was my initial drawing to it when I was in college. And so I think that that now I realize that I can't I, for me to say I fully embrace I am this. Is, is really pompous, you know. It's like, yes, the Dalai Lama, if he's the Dalai Lama, his response is, I'm a simple Buddhist monk, you know. It's like you mm-hmm. say, well, <laughs> you say, you say, well, are you a bodhisattva? And he will say, I am a simple Buddhist monk. So I think that, I think that, um, you know, it's kind of where I am right now is, Never to preach. I can't preach. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just asking questions and sharing those questions with people that care. And there are people that have noticed. Um, John Malkin in California has interviewed me several times now for for um, Buddhist publications, and so he understood. You know the the language I was speaking. So there are people out there that that picked up on the language and see that no, this is not a love ballad or this is not a romantic ballad. Um, you know, it's 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 something um, I don't want to say deeper. It's just not that obvious an interpretation. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a little more sublime than that, I guess. But yeah, that I, was, I'm, that I'm was guilty of that point. as well, actually. <laughs> or I, I I took that song to be more specifically about kind of being a, a artist and are you your art and are you an artist or are you the the person that makes the art or something. So I, I was, 
I was also that's off base about that song. <laughs> it's a it's a perfectly fine interpretation, though. That's see, because you're saying that it's a song to the self, so it's a perfectly fine interpretation to say that it's not a song to another. It's not a song to a man. I mean, it's a song. To, it's a song. So, so so then you know the reason why it goes into cathedral is because see, everything. If you list every single track on there is an illusion. It's all like a hall of mirrors, a fun, funny house mirrors. I mean, it's all an illusion. And so the the uh, the cathedral track, you know, one uh, woman that interviewed me said, "Oh, I can hear the, you know, the, the the water dripping off of the walls." I'm in an ancient, you know, cathedral, and 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 so that was recorded. The atmosphere was recorded on my phone when I was on tour with Father Murphy uh, in a cathedral. Um, you know, stopping at a, 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 a rest stop in, in, a, in a town, and so so that's um, you know a, a, just a field recording that I and and the field recording included somebody in a tourist group getting a um, you know a cell phone call. So you hear a European mm-hmm. cell phone sound, and so then I added these voices, you know, and I did harmonies, and I added all these different voices, and then um, I have the sound of of singing. And then a man says, you, know, "You can't do that in here. You can't re- can't re singing and recording in here." So, so then you know you hear me going, "Uh huh, okay, yeah, uh huh." And then so then I stop, and then I, I go back and add the studio voices that I did to the live voice in the church, and so that's then it becomes a choir. So, so I mean, it's, it's all like like you never really know where you are. It's always an illusion. And and then someone was asking me about the. The, the percussion song, well, that's because the whole thing is intended not for Spotify. The whole thing was intended as a concept. So you listen to it from beginning to end. So at that point, the reason why I like including an instrumental thing is because I don't want people to get sick of hearing my voice. So, <laughs> so I want to give you a break before I come back. And so I set, I set up the listener with that track. I set up the listener for Man of Hay, which is the, the new version of Man of Hay, when I, when I really, really was feeling those words in, in a very big way. And I think that the, the most powerful line of that song, which I came to realize had a lot of meaning lately, was that we are responsible. We are you can't point the finger to one person. We are the man of hate. We, you know, we, 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 we say, you know, oh, we're, you know, we're innocent. No, you're not innocent. You've made this happen. And so it seems like right now it's extremely pertinent and even more so lately. So I think that, um, you know, that it kind of sets you up for that emotionally. And this was going to be the, you know, the beginning and the ending of the set, the song, and, and I I really wanted to sing it that way, where it's really kind of barren and stripped, with no, no voice effects, and just um, very honest and very direct. So the whole thing is conceptual, and of course, the number one way people hear music today, in the face of these people that love vinyl, okay, well, the statistics are the number one way that people hear music today is streaming. And they don't stream albums, they stream particular songs. So that kind of blows the idea of a concept album out of the water. 
<laughs> and so I read that and I thought, holy shit, maybe I should be focusing on, instead of concept albums, it should be every single song stands alone. Even. <laughs> concept songs, even. <laughs> yeah, so... So, and you know, some people, some performers have talked about this. Like Zoe Keating comes to mind about her revenue stream, her source of income, and um, I will have to agree with her as a, a person who has the rights, um, digital rights, to everything that I've done, um, except for stuff in Swans, of course. Um, and then some of that I did upload on my own um, because you know it, it, it was cover versions, and they were not reissued. So I felt like, well, why can't I get them out there? They're not being mm-hmm. reissued. So, uh, but other than that, um, my number one revenue stream for a while now has been Spotify. So that's interesting because originally when I joined DistroKid and started uploading work through them, um, the number one was iTunes. And then it shifted to Apple Music and Amazon, and now it's 100% Spotify. Like that is that's the dominant source of income, so that shows you, um, you know, the window to how how a lot of people are are listening. They're listening to streaming. Yeah, yeah, that's a hard problem to solve. Uh, I think people have gotten used to not having to pay very much money for music, like with Spotify and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, this yeah, is, this is, I don't have any problem with it. My personal way that I do that. it. Yeah is I stream mm-hmm. music and then stuff that I really enjoy, I buy a, a vinyl copy of it. There's a chance mm-hmm. I won't listen to that vinyl copy for six months or a year or something. Um, mm-hmm. But it's kind of like, you know, a band comes through town, so you buy their T-shirt to, you know, support them. Yeah, you're, tr- you're completely right. I mean, the only reason that I've done um, record companies for um, a, a couple of tours. The reason I do it is because, like Consoling Sounds, they're in Europe. So the whole plan is the thing was going to be released when I had landed in Europe. And I was going to be able to get copies of the vinyl and CD to sell at shows. Because you're completely right, the real need for merch is on tour. And, I mean, it's a vital part of one's income for the tour. It keeps the tour. People don't really understand how expensive it is to tour, I don't think. <laughs> so, anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so um, yeah. So, see, that didn't happen because my tour w- wasn't possible. So, I think that, um, you know, I still believe it's very important for artists to, of course, control their publishing, but if, I think also to control and to own all their digital rights, and um, I, I have seen a really good revenue stream from from, from uh, stores like or, or outlets, whatever, like uh, like Spotify. But I, I will say that my way of listening to music, because I got rid of thousands of books and CDs and records <clears throat> some years ago, and so my number one way of um, of listening to music is Apple Music, and my number one. Um, place of listening to music is in the car and I stream it you know when I'm in the car and 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 that's that's really my dominant way of you know of listening to music and so I think that um I could never listen to any of these Pandora or any of this stuff where you don't pay because you know you have the commercial interruptions I can't stand that so I think that 
that um, if you had to talk about someone like me, and here's why I like it. I can read about something, anything at all, some exciting release, you know, contemporary, classical, anything at all, and boom, there it is in my library. So I don't have to buy it and wait for it to show up, you know. I don't have to, and, and I like the fact that it's not taking up room in any of my devices. It's just something I can enjoy anytime I want, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, as long as I have a cellular connection, I can I can hear it. So it's just a modern way, in my opinion, to um, to listen. And I understand the collectors. You know, I have some friends that have a collection that they're basically is pushing them out of their house. Its collection is so big of vinyl and CD, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 it's it's great when you can get an incredible artist. You know, like Densora to do the art. And certainly, if I have the need, I will will do that again specifically for for tour revenue you know but i don't collect it myself i don't don't collect it myself i have a very few things i don't even have i don't even have what i've done myself (laughs) (laughs) i don't even i don't have hardly any swans i don't have you know i don't i don't um I got really tired of, of, of having things a few years ago, and so I, I, I got rid of... I didn't sell it. I got rid of um, my entire household before I moved, and I gave it to a friend, and I think he turned around and, and, and sold everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, but uh, you know, at some point, you just kind of... Um, you, feel, you just want to be freer, I guess, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's surprising how... Yeah, you know, and then you figure, you know, you go vinyl, um, that's cool, but of course then you got to buy, you know, a record player, and then you got to have a needle, and then you got, and I don't, see, I don't have any of that, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm glad people buy it, you know, um, but, you know, again, you're completely right. If, if, if I, I don't, but when, you, when it was possible to see shows, right, of course it's not now, but when it was, and some friends of mine were to come, where I was, right, wherever I was to see them. First of all, I think it's obnoxious to ask you to put on the guest list. I think it's obnoxious. <laughs> I think that you should I support agree. your friends. You should support your friends, and you should buy the damn ticket. And if they have somehow put you on the list, even though you said no, 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 and you show up and there's somebody waiting and says, here's your pass or whatnot, then you have an obligation to go buy a T-shirt, or whatever they're selling. You have to, because otherwise you're not supporting your friends. So that's how I look at it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, I I really appreciate you uh, taking so much time to talk with me today. Oh, I'm happy to talk with you. I'm happy to talk to a regional uh, podcast and, and, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm here in Roswell, Georgia, so you're not that far away. Awesome. Awesome. I didn't want to ask. Thank you uh, very much for thank you. Thank you very much for reaching out. Yeah, well, thank you very much for uh, being on the show. I really appreciate it. All right, well, thank you. Have a great day. Great. Thank you. Bye. All right, you want to throw some tags on there? This has been a Comfort Monk production. <laughs>